episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today, I'm speaking with Liz Sharp, who's an Essex-based therapist with over 20 years experience in community mental health, especially with helping her clients overcome emotional and physical barriers in their life. And she works privately in Essex and also at the Essex Cardiothoracic Centre as part of the care team. So welcome, Liz. Thank you, Paul. How are you today? All good, thank you. We've known each other for a couple of years now, and you did some workshops, some great workshops at the Guinness World Record, and you're also going to be at the Not Alone event, but unfortunately, you got a slightly better and warmer offer, didn't you? (laughs) I did indeed, yeah. I thought I'd, I'd shoot off to the Caribbean instead, which was very nice, so... I can't blame you for doing that, but you you were missed. (laughs) So I just wondered if, just to set the scene, if you could tell me briefly about your sort of working experience to set it in context of cardiac arrest and survival. Yeah, sure. So my background working in mental health services, my last role was managing community-based residential people in their own homes, etc. People with quite complex mental health like uh, schizophrenia or bipolar or personality disorder. And my role was as the area manager, so overseeing the services, about 165 beds in all. And then I stepped away from that, moved into the world of self-employment as I decided that I really wanted to focus on being a therapist and being a counsellor counsellor and using my hypnotherapy. So yeah, I've been self-employed for the last four years doing this full time. Mm-hmm. How's that been going? Yeah, no, I, I love it. Yeah, I love uh, turning up to work every day. It's all good. And then I got, I got involved with yourselves at the GWR and did some workshops. Uh, was it a couple of years ago now? A year and a half it ago? Was, well, now we're in 2020. It was in, yeah, it was June 2018. Yeah. So, uh, and that was my first experience of getting to know more about cardiac arrest, really. So, in terms of it, so got involved with GWR, did some workshops for you on self help tips around managing sort of feelings of stress, anxiety, trauma. And I was doing that on the day. Mm hmm. No, they were very well received, as I said earlier. Could you sort of tell me, you mentioned two terms about uh, therapy and counselling. Can you sort of just say what the difference is between those two things? Yeah, sure. So I became a counsellor about 2000, 2001, person-centred counselling, which is a diploma in counselling. So sitting down with people, talking through their problems very much in the here and now. With my other therapies, I'm a hypnotist, hypnotherapist, and I, I BWRT, which is brain work and recursive therapy, and a couple of other therapies, and more about helping people change their mindset. So rather than see a spider and scream and run out, you kind of see a spider and maybe shrug your shoulders and realise that's not bothering me so much. And that's the sort of aim of my job, really. I try to help people get back on their life sort of quickly and move away from the sort of traumas. So in my day job, I work with people that might have anxiety or depression or stress or maybe overcoming addictions or post-traumatic stress disorder, getting over the trauma. And then with the work with the people with heart heart conditions, helping people uh, get back on with their life after that. So in my introduction, which I took a little bit from your website, I must confess, you say you, you help people get over their emotional and physical barriers. What, what do you mean by that? 
So in terms of it, so somebody that I might see that's had a cardiac arrest or a significant cardiac event, as well as all of the physical stuff, so you might have either signed off by the doctor and say you're fit to get back on with your life now. But anxiety and the stress around the event can make you feel pretty rubbish. So my role is about helping people refine their confidence, maybe make some life changes, get back on with some healthy living uh, or dealing with the flashbacks and just really finding a way to get back on with life. Life that might be a bit different to how it was before your event, but getting back on with the life going forward. So you mentioned that you're, well, I mentioned as well that you're part of the cardiac arrest recovery team at the Essex Cardio Thoracic Centre. So I think you said you've been doing that for just over a year or so. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what happened is my, we obviously know each other from some of the sort of networking stuff around South End, but my dad passed away in a couple of years ago and he'd had a very long history of uh, heart disease. So he had a bypass when he was 46 and he was kind of given 10 years to, you know, have the best use out of that bypass. But he went on to actually go from 46 through to the age of 81 and then was just happily passed away from just old age. So after he died, I decided that I wanted to maybe raise some money for a heart charity or South End Hospital or something. So as you may remember, I signed up and announced very publicly what I wanted to do was run a marathon. And I, believe me, I don't like running, as I realised as soon as I announced it and decided which uh, way I was going to go about cha- training and raising money for charity. So I very quickly realised that's not what I want to do to help people with uh, heart problems. And then you came along and said about, did I want to do a workshop at the GWR? And then from that, yeah, met a lot of people on that day. I was uh, stunned by some of the stories that I was speaking to people about, their experiences of life after a cardiac arrest, both for themselves and their families. I'm really struck by the emotional after effects, which despite my 20 years as a therapist, it wouldn't have occurred to me. So from that, I contacted Dr. Keeble and said that, look, I can give some time. If there's anything I can do to help people recover from such a cardiac event, a cardiac arrest, then I'd be happy to do so. And then I've been going along to Basildon CTC units on Tuesday since then. So that's just over a, yeah, so just over a year months. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I see up to three clients a week. I know not every hospital in the country has this access to this amazing therapies and what uh, the rehab team do there. But I see up to three clients a week and try to help the person go from uh, where they are, uh, which may not be in the uh, best of emotional states. Into what, What point do you get to see them? How soon after they've been? Have they been discharged when you see them or? Yeah, they're they're generally discharged. They may be going to the the gym and being part of the rehab there. And then I, yeah, they'll come along to see me after that. So for Uh maybe up to uh, six sessions. Some people only need one. Some people go ahead and take the whole six. And how long would a session be? Uh, About an hour, hour and a quarter uh, for each person. So I also work with relatives as well. So maybe the person who's given the support on on the event... Typically, do you, do you see them together or do you see them individually? Generally, individually. I've had people come along where both of them have come in. But what I find is it's obviously 
two different very experiences of the, the same situation, two different emotional reactions. And also two people will be at different levels or different parts of their emotional journey with it. So somebody might be feeling angry where the other one's feeling okay, or maybe somebody's in a state of anxiety and sort of dealing with the two different parts. So generally individual sessions are better. Would you be able to say what the sort of common issues that you see with, say, the patient, i.e. the person who's had the cardiac arrest and the person who's come with them, the partner? Um, I'm guessing some of those people may have actually been involved with their rescue as well, considering that a lot of them happen at home. Yep. For the patient, I generally find sometimes people are telling their story for the first time. So they've come out of hospital and uh, I'm going to suspect that everyone knows the story because the families have been telling people, the work colleagues all know about it. So sometimes when they turn up and sit in the room with me, they're kind of talking through it for the first time, which seems sometimes a bit odd, but trying to make sense of what's happened to them and how life's changed and how they're feeling about it. How are people when they retell their story? It varies. Uh, Some people are trying to make sense of it and trying to understand it. Some people are sometimes a bit confused, you know, in terms of, well, they're saying it was a cardiac arrest, but I can't quite believe that because I don't remember anything that happened before and I just woke up in hospital. Do you get people being emotional while they're telling it? Uh, Definitely. Yeah, definitely emotional. Sometimes people will be feeling anxious or depressed or just generally quite stressed because obviously life has changed as well. Maybe there's changes to work or career or their role in the family, things they'd normally be able to do at that point, not being possible to do. And the, the trauma around also if it happened and didn't anticipate it happening, didn't have any sort of warning then not necessarily having enough trust in your own body again because if it's happened once then could it happen again is some of the things i find mm-hmm. and what about the do, do people do patients have flashbacks as well because yep. i've got no recollection at all but occasionally i hear of one or two people who say they could remember this or they could remember that and you know they don't like that experience of having a flashback yeah, there's there can be it varies. Some people will say they remember the morning before it happened, or maybe the week before it happened, and then it all goes goes a bit blank. Or people have sort of maybe flashbacks to possibly times when they were in ICU or recovering from the anaesthetic, etc., and having the sort of nightmares around that and since. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, the partners or lifesavers sometimes what sort of things do you see that the issues these people have again the the stress around the whole event the relationship may have changed whilst the health of the person is improving maybe they've had to take on a different role and different responsibilities maybe within the home but the stress of the whole thing happening as well you know what if I hadn't been there? What if it happens again? And obviously fear the fact that it happens to their loved one and partner and thinking about changes as well, because it obviously impacts on the whole uh, family dynamic. So perhaps thinking about how kids have resp- how their kids have responded or sort of older adults in the family and taking on obviously a lot of the responsibility, but trying to sometimes not talk to their partner about it of how it feels for them so again sometimes they're talking for the first time 
You're right, because uh, quite quite often it's all focused around the patient, isn't it? Yeah. And the the partner um, yeah. never gets a chance to sort of offload what's troubling them. I know that was a situation for for my wife, and you know it can t- it can be a big burden for them to, especially if they're not getting any support. Um, yeah from the hospital or from other places because they you you go from the situation when you're in hospital you're being looked after normally fantastically and then you're discharged and then all that pressure of the the care pressure is put onto the partner really and it can be quite a a, a concerning time for them Mm. as well as what they've possibly gone through before when they if they were there at the actual event having to do cpr seeing their partner in the the worst possible state, as it were. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And also remembering that people had a life before the cardiac event. So sometimes life isn't perfect before all of that. So there might be, you know, maybe emotional issues or life issues or life change difficulties happening. And then that gets combined with everything to do with the hospital and suddenly a new role of medication and appointments and the new roller coaster that the person's on. And, you know, the emotions of everything from guilt to depression to anxiety to stress to sadness, fear for the future, because it's a significant change for everyone that's all concerned. With, with the partner maybe not feeling able to uh, voice the fact that they're having a difficult time because not wanting to put pressure on the person who's recovering. It's, yeah, I think you're right there. They don't, yeah, as I said, they, they, they feel like they can't add to the burden of the overall uh, problem, as it were. Yeah. So, Which is where where people like you come in, where you can you, you give them someone to talk with and uh, to sort of, I don't know, offload the problem is the right word, but uh, help process the problem. Yeah, and, and know that it's okay to have those emotions. They're normal emotions. It, it's, it, yeah, it's a normal state of affairs to feel anxious, depressed, sad, depressed, uh, stressed, etc. And that it's okay to look for some support for yourself. I think where the, the attitude of some people might be, well, okay, you're okay now, you've been discharged, or you're lucky to be alive, so therefore what, what you're worrying about, why are you feeling sad? I think that puts a lot of pressure on people as well, because that adds to the feelings of guilt, I shouldn't be feeling this way. And sort of sometimes just accepting the fact, no, it was a really significant event that happened, and it's okay to allow time for that processing of those emotions to happen. You you mentioned guilt there. Do you see people feeling guilty? I think it's another common common reaction to such a significant event, the if-onlys. So, you know, if only I'd got more sleep at night or had exercised more or if I'd done this for the partner, the one about if only I'd, I don't know, stop them smoking or made them do this or should I've got them to the doctors a week earlier when they had a bit of flu that sort of thing it's a normal reaction of trying to make sense of a situation that isn't normal because you're trying to make two and two add up to four but sometimes it's it takes a while for those pieces to pieces of the jigsaw to come together I mean I, I've seen seen sort of I never felt guilty about it happening to me because I always felt like I'd lived a fairly healthy lifestyle and so I, I hadn't bought it. but I see people feeling guilty because they survived and maybe someone else who was perhaps in their mind more deserving of surviving didn't survive and I always separate them as they're not connected events 
So there's no reason why I should feel guilty rather than someone else, someone else surviving. But I, I see lots of people who, who perhaps feel guilty. Like I, I don't understand that rationale, but it, it's obviously there and, and hard to deal with. But there is also the other guilt, which I do feel a bit guilty about, is which is silly, really, because I had no control over what happened. But obviously, I put my wife through a very probably the most traumatic situation that she's ever been through. Mm. So there is a bit of uh, a guilt for putting her through that. Not that I could do anything about it. No, absolutely. And it's it's that feeling of discomfort that can go with the feelings of guilt that happen. You know, oh, I wish this hadn't happened to me. And if only it hadn't happened to me, because if it hadn't happened, then this wouldn't be happening. But, you know, sometimes finding a, a solution to that is to be able to just let it go and say, well, this is the situation we're in now. And it's nobody's fault and sort of moving forward that way. I think there's probably differences as well with people that have got a, a medical reason for their cardiac arrest and ones that is no known reason. The idiopathic. The idiopathic, that's the word I was looking that, for. That, that's me. Um, oh, is that you idiopathic? Yeah. So yeah, I am. Yes. Trying, to, trying to make sense of um, something that there's an answer for is, is you know, a difficult place to be sometimes. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think these issues and experiences are, are common to cardiac arrest survivors? Because I know you see other types of patients as well. I mean, in terms of getting over any sort of health trauma, so I, I work with people that are maybe recovering from cancer as well. And it's the, uh, the common thing is that at some point, a doctor sat down and said, this is the situation. You know, this is where your health's at. We need to do more tests, etc. Obviously, with somebody that's had a cardiac arrest, they've woken up in hospital and had that conversation. There's common traumas around it because they, it may affect somebody's um, confidence with being alone or every time a brown envelope from a hospital pops through the door, the feelings of anxiety, the raise, leading to make sometimes quite significant life changes. And all the emotions that go with that, so anger and the stress around it, and then coping with the fear of the future sometimes. Will it happen again? Am I okay now? Uh, just because my doctor says it's okay, does that mean it's still okay? Because there's you know, significant events, significant emotions to deal with. And it impacts on relationships, on work, on friendship groups, and sometimes your choices going forward. Do do you see anything unique to to this group of patients? I mean, it essentially our lives have come to an end. Whereas maybe in all, all these other situations, people are are more coming towards the end. Whereas ours have ended for a brief period, and there is a sort of a whole lot of baggage in my mind anyway. That there is a baggage around that, getting your head around the fact that your life did actually end, and there's a you are mortal. It sort of brings it all home to you. I think that's a really good point in terms of, so if I'm working with people that have got different health cardiac issues to people that have had a cardiac arrest, I'll sometimes notice a difference there. So in terms of a person that's had a cardiac arrest, you're absolutely right, has actually faced the point of this did happen. So it's kind of uh, not necessarily a fear of dying because actually something had to be done to get you back to living again. That can be quite a big difference. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I, I used to, in some of the talks I've done, mention about the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross grief curve. And I yes. know, I think you did some... Uh, yeah, I do some stuff on that. Yeah. 
And I, I that really resonated with me. Have you got anything to say about that at all? Yeah, I mean, just on, in terms of the, the fear of dying and the actual dying, I think that's it's a really good point as well in terms of what's the worst that can happen. There's a different emotional reaction to well, it did actually happen. And I think that's sometimes where stuff like EMDR or BWRT or hypnotherapy can help deal with that. Uh, in terms of the Kubler-Ross, so yeah, I do think people go through the those five stages. So the sort of denial, the bargaining, the anger that goes with it. And I think I noticed that in my sessions as well. So some people feeling like if I, well, if I do this, then I'll, stop it from ever happening again and or if I try and pretend it didn't happen then maybe it didn't happen so sort of people go through those range of emotions certainly can be along the lines of anger so why did this happen to me you know I've, I've never smoked I've never drunk I've always exercised so why why was it me that had the cardiac event when somebody up the road who might be on 20 a day etc they're fine i think it's it's the range of emotions to go through i think it's perfectly normal and i think sometimes also just giving yourself the permission to feel those perhaps negative emotions knowing that it's a normal state of affairs that you know 70 odd percent of people with cardiac arrest will have stress anxiety depression ptsd knowing that it doesn't mean that you're going mad it just means that your your brain is helping to process it We've established that people go through a lot of disparate feelings and uh, not nice feelings and emotional problems. So how, how do you help them overcome these? So one, one thing I find is that quite a lot of the people that come through the door don't necessarily know how to relax, don't know how to necessarily switch off and calm their minds, calm their body. I also find that there's a, a fair proportion of people that don't really understand about how anxiety affects the body or how depression affects the body because perhaps they've never experienced it before. And then suddenly they're having all these range of emotions that you know they've, they've never experienced. So understanding and explaining what's happening if you're having a panic attack or if you're feeling anxious and the effect it has on your physical being makes a big difference. I think it can be quite common that somebody that's maybe had uh, health issues may pop back up to the doctors saying, well, it feels like it's happening again when perhaps that's just anxiety that's kicked in with the sort of stress that goes on. So some of the things I do is, yep, helping people learn how to relax, understand what's happening, have an opportunity to explain and say their own story and how it affects them, sort of a safe space to say things out loud and sort of process it, process it in there and now. Working out a bit of a plan sometimes, so what people intend to do for the following week until I next see them, that might be just the next step. In terms of working with clients, so yeah, I'm a hypnotherapist, the power of the subconscious, being able to let go of stuff that you're holding on to in sort of a content-free approach is really good. And also the sort of brain work and recursive therapy that I do, as well as other stuff, which is, again, is just about changing the reaction. I think my main aim is to help the person to stop having the cardiac arrest as being maybe the headline news and let it just rescind a bit more into the background. So it's not about giving somebody amnesia or making them forget that it ever happened, but stop it from having the emotional impact that can then. Uh, I don't think you have life. to give give them amnesia of it because a lot of them have already forgotten about it. 
good point. Uh, <laughs> and we, we quite often have dodgy memories afterwards anyway. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's about being able to let go of the emotional uh, impact of the event. I, I find personally that, you know, over the years, the more I've talked about it, the more, the more I guess, depersonalised it becomes. Uh, and it's more, like you say, pushing it off of the, the headline as time goes by. It's going towards the, the middle and, and it'll drop out of the paper and it won't be news. It'll just be something that happened. Yeah. And probably with all the stuff you're doing with the with the Facebook group and all the rest of it, you're getting lots of opportunities to talk it through and speak to people that are on a different on the same same journey, but maybe at a different point. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's very relevant. Yes, it's, it, it it helps to see that you know if people are eighteen months, two years ahead of you, you can see what what life they're living and how they feel. And I, I guess it's just a case of. Well, talking is good, isn't it? And is that a core principle of yours? Talking is good, yeah. I, I I use a lot of the sort of work with the subconscious. So in terms of switching off the part of the brain that is yes, but no, but yes, but uh, the sort of conscious critical part and letting the sort of powerful subconscious kick in, create that new future, letting go of the, the traumas that are happening. So yeah, I, I find it really pe- beneficial for clients. You said, uh, I think at the beginning, you typically see people for up to six weeks, but sometimes just one week. Can it make a difference in that shorter space? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In terms of it doesn't necessarily need to be a life in therapy or a life of talking about stuff. You can work content free. You don't even have to necessarily say your story. Just know what it is you're feeling now and how it is you want to feel. And I guess you're you're giving people a, a toolkit of techniques that they can use for the rest of their life, really, to help absolutely. deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. People perhaps haven't uh, learned how to deal with stress before or stuff that makes them feel anxious or worried. So you know, once you've learned some new ways of dealing with stuff, they, they apply to all situations that you can then bring in. So are there any sort of tools or tips that you can give to people on the podcast? Well, obviously, it's it's more difficult that when you haven't got someone sitting in front of you and they relay their story to you and you can gauge how they are mentally and physically and emotionally. But are there any sort of things that you could perhaps give people to to help them on their way? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm a big fan of everyone learning how to relax, uh, learning how to switch off. We carry a lot of sort of tension in our bodies. So the sort of benefit of learning how to breathe properly, which sounds ironic, but learning how to breathe properly can make a really big difference. In terms of if you think about anxiety, not everyone understands or knows where anxiety comes from and what happens in the body and the brain. If you imagine that it it was a fear of spiders and you're looking at the floor and you've suddenly clocked that black thing with legs, or you think it is, then what happens is is your uh, eyes tell your brain that there's a potentially dangerous situation here, or your brain interprets it a potentially dangerous situation, and your body will fill up with all hormones that get you ready to run really fast or hit really hard or faint and freeze. So your body's filled up with all this adrenaline and that will make you do things like getting as much oxygen as you can. So you start breathing in very quickly from the chest, getting in as much hyperventilating as you can. Your blood pressure may go up because you're sending that oxygen around your system so that your arms and legs can 
run faster and hit harder. So your arms and legs will then feel maybe heavy or tingly, that sort of thing. If you were to imagine that you're running for your life, you don't want to be digesting food. So that's where you need to go to the toilet comes in or you couldn't bother, uh, you couldn't face the idea of eating. You can feel quite shaky and quite trembly because you've got all of this extra hormones that's in your body getting you ready to run fast. If you were running fast, you wouldn't want to be hot and bothered. So you'd notice that you might start sweating or your palms go clammy. You, you stop being able to think straight. So all of the blood that's gone from the front part of the brain that's helping you rationalise and risk assess and plan, all that blood's gone there to feed the back of the brain, the reptilian brain, which gets you ready to respond. It's very much that dealing with danger. So you stop being able to think straight. So if you needed to try and remember something, you wouldn't be able to. If somebody asks you a question, you go a bit blank. And if you remember the, the public speaking feeling when somebody stands on stage doing the goldfish look with the mouth just open, it's because all your throat's dried up as well. You can't get the words out because everything's hot and bothered in your body and your heart's going faster and you're just not thinking straight and you can't remember. So that's all happening while the... Uh, spiders there and then somebody comes along and stamps on it or it becomes a bit of black cotton and then your body then calms itself down again so all of that uh, extra hormone then just becomes stress cortisol and that kind of hangs around your body for 24 36 hours ready just to respond just to respond in case something else happens that you need a quicker response like a third of a second response so if you ever speak to somebody that's maybe had a panic attack or had a high feeling of anxiety, they might feel quite trembly for the next sort of 24, 36 hours, maybe have another mini little panic attack because the body is just on hypervigilance, hyper alert. Just keeping on the, the sort of spider theme. Then we learn how to keep ourselves safe and safe and well. So our brain has learned that when you're in that situation, you stayed alive because I gave you all of this hormone and you responded like this and that spider didn't kill you. So it then starts becoming that you look at the garden shed and you start thinking about the deck chairs getting out and your brain remembers the fact there was a spider there once. So you start reacting just in case you have to go near the shed. Or you hear about people that uh, maybe have been bitten by a dog. So they have a fear of big dogs and then that fear becomes small dogs and then the sound of dogs barking and then the idea of not going near a park because there might be dogs there because your body is filling yourself up with all this fight or flight response. So the main aim of all of it is to either stop yourself from reacting it. So you see the spider and you react as if it's nothing or it doesn't bother you. Uh, that's my main aim as a uh, therapist and a counsellor. Or when the spider's in the room to learn how to respond differently so you can calm yourself down and keep all of the, the blood in the right place and your body nice and calm so you can deal with the situation. Or if you've had the, the panic reaction, then after the event, you can calm yourself down quicker so you can take back control. So a lot of the sort of self-help tips I give is around managing those situations. So people, for instance, in the cardiac clinic who might, might suddenly feel like they can't go out the front door because they're too worried something might happen or any sort of flashbacks to the trauma, being able to get yourself back down into uh, a calmer place of being. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So in terms of some of the tips... 
the main aim to keep yourself in control is to basically keep your body and your your mind nice and calm. So if you imagine that you're faced by the spider and the first thing you start doing is breathing very quickly from the chest, as it were, you know, that sort of top chest breathing. Your mind also gets the, the message that there must be something wrong because you're breathing like this. So if you wanted to ever put yourself into the position of having a panic attack, if you were just to deliberately hyperventilate for a couple of minutes, you'd you'd start feeling more on edge. It would just start normally happening for you because your brain is saying, well, there must be something wrong here. Have some Have some hormones. Have some hormones so you can respond to whatever danger is. So if you, there's plenty of stuff on um, YouTube or I've got stuff on my site, learn how to breathe calmly from the more of the bottom of bottom part of the lung, as it were, the belly. Your brain then gets the message, everything must be okay because you're not responding as if there's a problem. So even if there is a problem and the spider is there, if you respond calmly, then your mind won't go to pieces on you quite so much. So there's various things you could do. Square breathing, which is where you breathe in for six and you breathe out for six. And you just notice how your muscles are getting heavier and uh, more relaxed as you do that. But you could add to that, for instance, a favourite colour. So if you were to imagine that your favourite calming colour is a nice sky blue, just imagine yourself just breathing in that sky blue, letting it circulate around your body and then breathing out and just allowing it as if it's a bubble just forming around you. You can do 7-11 breathing, which is where you breathe in for seven, uh, you hold it for a second or two, and then you breathe out a bit slower. So you're just, you're just taking back control over your, your own responses, really. Really powerful, can help you through a lot of situations just by simply being able to just calm things down in the second and dealing with things. Is that all making sense? Absolutely. And is this some stuff that people should do just when they're starting to get feeling anxious or or is it something they should incorporate into their sort of daily regime? I, I think everyone should do it a couple of times a day minimum. It's a minute or two because what you're doing is you're just setting up some neural pathways, some ways of uh, responding. So your brain then gets used to responding calmly. And the, you know, the more calm we are, the more uh, relaxed we are, then it helps you deal with a rubbish day mm-hmm. or a challenge that might come along. So, yeah, 100% when you wake up in the morning, when you're in the shower or at lunchtime, whatever, just take a couple of minutes out just to sit relax your mind and body and simply allow it to be. If you look on the Apple watches, etc., I think there's also apps that you can watch it go in and out as if you were just following a bubble going in and out as well. So there's plenty of apps, apps online there for doing that. So yeah, that's my number one tip. Definitely. I guess it's a, a gateway into sort of mindfulness, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's simply about being more in the moment. Uh, when we're, Anxious, we're normally uh, worrying about, well, this could happen, that could happen, and then what if that happens? And then before you know it, you've created a whole Stephen King story in your mind about what's going to go wrong in life, and if that happens, then this happens. That That's not always helpful. So mm, sometimes no. bringing yourself back to where you are now and uh, staying sort of focused on that makes a difference. 
So uh, similarly, in terms of my uh, next tip, so if you imagine that your brain is in two halves and you've got your logical side, which is that two plus two is four, and you've got your creative side, you've got the bit that loves creating stories or art and being artistic. If you uh, get an object like a ball, like a stress ball, and pass it from hand to hand widely and just follow it with your eyes as you go in left and right, then that also uh, will just help you just rebalance things. It stops your Stephen King brain from sticking uh, sticking a big story and telling you where, where the problems are and brings you back into the moment. So that's another really useful tip for people if they're having a difficult time. Mm-hmm. I wonder how Stephen King sleeps at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his creative brain is very, very powerful on him. In terms of it as well, if people are uh, struggling with anxiety, one of the things I always talk to people about is what they're doing to be creative. So if you're focusing on, for instance, art or jigsaws or putting together an airfix model, that sort of thing, it can kind of just help center things again take your mind off what's going on and whilst you're doing that your the back of your mind your subconscious mind will be just having a little think about working out solutions for you as well so again just spending some time every day doing that sort of thing makes a really big difference to how you're feeling emotionally over the course of the week Mm -hmm. have you ever heard of expressive writing Oh, that moves me on to another one that's on my list. Morning pages. Yeah, no, morning pages, which is if people find themselves waking up and just feeling really stressed before they've even got out of bed. One of my tips that I give people is three sides of A4 and you basically just write. So you might be everything from, oh, it's a blue sky day today. I wonder what I'm going to do later to I'm really worried about this. I'm really angry about this. and I'm stressed by this and maybe I'll go down the park. But basically, you're just writing. You're not editing it. You're not thinking it back. And at the end of those three pages where you're writing as quickly as you can, then you basically just fold up your bit of paper and you never read it again. What you're doing is you're clearing your mind. So you're emptying it of all the stuff, all the junk you've woken up with, and then you're able to move through the day. Yeah, just feeling differently. Similarly, if somebody is experiencing insomnia, can't sleep at night, then that sort of thing can help as well because you're clearing your energy of the day that's just gone, then hopefully able to switch off. Our brains are good at trying to remember stuff and give us lots of to-do lists. So sometimes you need to write it down so that we don't try to remember all the time. The cardiac arrest patients who see, do they often have sleep problems? Yes, really common, whether this is uh, physical and down to medication or health as well. But sometimes, so if it's if it's not down that route, then, you know, the three o'clock in the morning, you've had a bit of a sleep and then you wake up wide awake at three o'clock in the morning worrying about X, Y and Z can be quite common. Mm-hmm. Any more tips or... Because I sort of interjected there with my expressive writing. What, what were you going to was, was that what you were going to say about expressive writing? Was it the same or similar? It's just the therapy where you you do write, but you write explicitly about a trauma for th- I think it's three or four days for fifteen minutes or so, and then okay. like it, it, it's like you say, you just write whatever you, whatever comes into your mind, and you. You don't have to read it afterwards and you just you don't review it. You don't need to show it to any anyone. It's just a case of getting your brain to to process the the trauma, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. 
And apparently that has very good success rate. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah. Just being able to stop having it yeah, piled up in your own brain. What, one thing I find that when I'm working with people with cardiac arrest particularly is about reaching a point of acceptance. So accepting the fact of the event and then being able to sort of future pace and look to the future. So seeing yourself, you know, healthy in the future, how you want to be living your life works really powerfully over hypnotherapy. But a lot of times I find that initially people find it sometimes quite difficult to see yourself at, you know, on on the summer holidays or in Christmas because it's all the fear of what could happen, what if. So finding a way to jump your mind forward to the future can can be really powerful as well. Mm -hmm. Could you just briefly say what hypnotherapy is? You've mentioned it a couple of times. I know you're a practitioner of it. Yeah, so it's um, basically a space to um, process what's happened and uh, see yourself dealing with situations. So I spend uh, some time with people finding out what the situation is, what they want to let go of and how they want to feel instead, and then put that together with a, with a script when somebody's in a state of uh, hypnosis we we spend all our time in and out of hypnosis so if you imagine that when you're driving a car and you've pulled up at your front door not quite sure how you did the last couple of miles but hoping you didn't cut a traffic light because you've gone left right and just got on with your journey and that's kind of like your subconscious taking over or when you're watching a Stephen King movie and you suddenly jump because the spider appears, again, it's you being engrossed in the story, so blocking out the world around you. So in terms of a hypnosis session, it's perfectly safe. If I said to somebody, you know, give us your bank details, you'd just open your eyes and laugh at me and tell me where to go because you're kind of always in control of what happens, and your your level of depth of trance. Like, yeah, I think it's a really powerful way of... Uh, dealing with stuff so i do recommend people listen to the podcast yeah check it out check out your local practitioners so if if people in sort of aren't in the essex area is there a way or don't have a, an equivalent clinic a care clinic at their their facility how could people access you or or a similar therapist in their area yeah, I mean, I I work and my colleagues will work with people over Skype and Zoom as well, because uh, it all works with the power of technology now. So, but yeah, no jumping on, having a look at sites. There's um, plenty of lists out there that people can then find out a qualified hypnotherapist or BWRT. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. And uh, Liz is, if you want to check out her more, she's got a website, which is liveyourlifetherapies.com, is it? It is, yep. Okay, that's cool. It's been really a fascinating conversation with you, Liz. So thank you very much for spending this morning um, talking with me and really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. If you've got anything else to add, please add it. But otherwise, thank you very much. No, just wishing everyone good health and good luck for 2020. Thanks very much. And I'll speak again soon. Okay, thanks, Paul. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast and I'd love to know what you think. You can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the website suddencardiacarrestuk.org and you can find us by googling Southern Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider such as Apple 
or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about life after cardiac arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest, on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe, and I'll speak to you next time. Bye.